accommodation claims and the recent decision in Swift and Carpenter. You're listening to The Civil Lawcast, a regular series on issues of interest and developments in civil law brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello and welcome to part one of this four-part mini-series in which we're discussing the common types of claims that come up in personal injury and clinical negligence litigation. My name is Daniel Laking and I'm a barrister specialising in personal injury, clinical negligence and inquests here at 39 Essex. This week we're talking about accommodation claims and in particular the recent decision in Swift and Carpenter. If you have any questions about this episode or other episodes in the series, please send us an email to marketing at 39essex.com. We'd love to hear from you. Before we get into Swift and Carpenter, let's go back to basics for a moment. What do we mean when we talk about accommodation claims? This phrase is really a catch-all term for two types of claim. First, the cost of adapting a seriously injured person's home. And second, the additional capital cost of buying a new property which is suitable for the claimant's needs. On the assumption, of course, that their current property, even with adaptations, wouldn't be suitable for them. Let's discuss the first of these two elements, which is arguably the more straightforward. A claimant who has been rendered disabled in an accident is entitled to the reasonable costs of adapting their home to account for their disabilities. This might include, at one end of the spectrum, buying a grabber or a set of steps to avoid having to bend down or reach up high. At the other end, it could involve building works to widen doors for a wheelchair or the installation of access ramps, for example. When claiming for adaptive costs, remember to evidence these in full. Usually, this will be by way of an expert report by a care and occupational therapy expert who will assess the claimant's reasonable needs and cost those adaptations. However, in the case of more extensive adaptations, such as, for example, the addition of an extra bedroom to accommodate a carer, you might need to get further evidence in the form of specific accommodation reports or quotes as to the reasonable cost of the work. A judge is not going to be able to assess the value of the claim without evidence of how much it would actually cost. The other point to remember if you're acting for the claimant is that if the adaptations reduce the value of the property, you're arguably entitled to claim for the reduction in the value of the property on top of the cost of the adaptations themselves. The reverse is true if you're defending a claim for adaptations. More often than not, adaptations increase the value of a property. In that case, the claimant must give credit for the additional value gained and set that off against the cost of the adaptations. In many cases, this doesn't happen. So make sure you're scrutinising a claimant's claim for adaptations for any hint that it might increase the value of the property. Remember, in all cases, the benchmark is whether the claimed adaptations are reasonable. This will depend on the evidence that the court prefers and findings as to the level of impairment that the claimant suffers from. Right, that's the simple bit over with. So now let's move on to the second and more difficult question, recovering the additional capital cost of a new property. This is where the recent case of Swift and Carpenter is crucial because it fundamentally changed the way in which we calculate loss to the claimant. Let's take a common factual scenario. The claimant lives in a house valued at £500,000. It's agreed between the parties that her current property isn't suitable for her needs. It's also agreed that the cost of buying a new property that would be suitable for her would be £750,000. So there's an increased capital cost there of £250,000. However, 
if the claimant was simply awarded £250,000, the argument goes that she would be overcompensated because she would essentially be able to purchase an asset that would probably have increased in value at the time of her death, thereby providing her estate with a windfall. That was the problem that the Court of Appeal grappled with in Swift and Carpenter, how to compensate the claimant without providing a windfall to her estate once she died. The old approach adopted by courts had been set out in a case called Roberts and Johnston in 1989. However, the Roberts and Johnston formula doesn't work when the discount rate is negative. A Roberts and Johnston calculation with a negative value produces nil. So essentially, the claimant is left with nothing, despite the fact that both parties agree she needs to move to different accommodation and that there would be a cost involved in that. So along came Mrs. Swift and in October 2020, the much anticipated judgment of the Court of Appeal in Swift and Carpenter. This provided a totally new formula for calculating accommodation claims and one which didn't result in the claimant getting nothing. So how did the Court of Appeal get there and how did they grapple with the problem of the claimant's estate getting a windfall? First, the facts. Mrs. Swift was involved in a serious road traffic accident in October 2013. She sustained crushing injuries to both feet and lower legs, which led to her needing an amputation. At trial, she was awarded a significant lump sum in damages, but no award was made for her future accommodation needs. The judge, Mrs Justice Lambert, considered herself bound by the Roberts and Johnston approach. She found there was a reasonable need for alternative accommodation and that the additional capital cost required to purchase that was £900,000. However, when £900,000 was inputted to the formula in Robertson Johnston, it produces a figure of zero. So that's what the claimant was awarded. Needless to say, the claimant wasn't enormously happy with that outcome and appealed the decision, contending essentially that the approach in Robertson Johnston was no longer fit for purpose. The lead judgment was given by Lord Justice Irwin. He considered three key questions. One, was the Court of Appeal bound by the decision in Roberts and Johnston and restricted from interfering with that formula? Second, if the court was not bound by Roberts and Johnston, should it award the full capital value of the sum required or should it award that sum but reduced to reflect the value of the windfall to the claimant's estate? And third, if the latter approach was correct, how should the court calculate the value of that windfall? So starting with question one, Lord Justice Irwin decided that the court was not bound by the formula set out in Roberts and Johnston. Essentially, this was because the formula wasn't binding legal principle. It was simply guidance helping lower courts to get a fair answer. The binding legal principle was that claimants were entitled to be provided with fair, just and reasonable compensation, but without overcompensating them. The formula set out in Roberts and Johnston was simply a means to an end. It was a way of getting to the key principle rather than the key principle itself. In the context of a negative discount rate, the formula no longer provided a suitable means to an end because it didn't produce a result which provided claimants with fair, just and reasonable compensation. It simply couldn't be right that claimants who were able to establish a need for more suitable and therefore more expensive accommodation should be denied any award at all. Having determined that the court was not bound, it went on to consider what the correct approach would be. This was the second question. Should the court simply award the claimant the full capital cost of the new accommodation, which in Mrs Swift's case was £900,000, or should it try and reduce the award to avoid overcompensation? Unsurprisingly, the court determined that it should try and find a way to reduce the capital sum to avoid a windfall. 
Lord Justice Irwin decided the most appropriate method was by subtracting the cost of what we call the reversionary interest. As a quick aside, what is a reversionary interest? Well, essentially, it's the future interest in a property which cannot be accessed until the death of the claimant. Reversionary interests most often arise in the context of inheritance. Take this example. A husband dies and leaves the family home to his children. However, his widow will have the right to live in the house until she dies. In this example, the wife would have the life interest and the children would have what we call the reversionary interest. In Mrs. Swift's case, she had the right to reside in the new property up until her death. So the theory went, if you subtracted the reversionary interest from the total cost, you'd be left with Mrs. Swift's life interest. The Court of Appeal decided that was the best way of compensating claimants, ensuring they had a property for life, but avoiding any additional benefit to the estate. In summary, the court wasn't bound by Roberts and Johnston, but it wasn't going to award the claimant the total costs of purchasing the new property either. Instead, it would award the claimant the total cost less the reversionary interest. So practically speaking, you need to be able to calculate two things. Figure number one, the additional capital cost of purchasing the new property, and figure number two, the value of the reversionary interest. You can then get to the award for accommodation by taking away figure two, the value of the reversionary interest, from figure one, the total cost. By the way, this bit gets a bit technical, so I've included a link in the show notes to a written version of the formula in case that's easier to follow. Now, back to the two figures we need to work out. Calculating figure one, the additional capital cost, is pretty easy. You simply need to take the cost of the new property and subtract the value of the claimant's current property. So, in our example from the introduction, the claimant's new property would cost £750,000, her current property is worth £500,000, so figure one, the additional capital cost, is £250,000. From that, we need to subtract the value of the reversionary interest, i.e. figure number two. That formula is as follows. Take the additional capital cost and multiply it, multiply it. That formula is as follows. Take the additional capital cost and multiply it by 1.05 to the power of the claimant's negative life expectancy. I can hear you reaching for the rewind button to try and figure out what I just said, but bear with me, it's not as tricky as it looks. First, why 1.05? This reflects the Court of Appeals' findings that the rate of return on a reversionary interest was likely to be 5% per year. If you multiply something by 1.05, it's of course equivalent to increasing it by 5%. Second, how to find out the claimant's life expectancy. For this, you'll need the Ogden tables, which can be found online by searching for Ogden table or in the publication Facts and Figures. You can discover any life expectancy by looking at the 0% column of table 1 in the case of men and table 2 in the case of women. Say we have a female claimant who's 30 years old at the time of trial. We can look at table 2 in the 0% column of Ogden, and that tells us that her life expectancy will be 58.32 years. So, returning to the formula, we take £250,000, the additional capital cost, and we multiply that by 1.05 to the power of minus 58.32 years. That provides a figure of £14,527. And that is our figure two, the value of the reversionary interest. Finally, to calculate the appropriate sum for the accommodation claim over rule, we take 
the £250,000 of capital cost, we subtract the £14,527 reversionary interest, which gives us an award of 235473 And that is the figure which the court should award. As I said, it's pretty technical, so please do have a look at the link in the description for a written worked example and get in touch if you have any questions about accommodation claims in your cases or if you're looking to defend them. That provides an overview of the new approach for accommodation claims which you need to adopt following Swift and Carpenter. I hope you found it helpful. If you have any questions at all about this or any other of the episodes in this mini-series, please get in touch with us at marketing at 39essex.com. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars. Thank you.